I love fortune cookies. They're pretty great. Yeah. You get a fortune and a cookie. And a cookie. It's weird. In one. In one thing. Welcome to the 88th episode of Beer and Fear. My name is Zach. Is it 88th? 88th page. Oh, I thought we were on like 89. No. I thought we were half, we thought we were closer. Nope. Oh, my name's Paige. I guess I'm here too. And then Ali's here too, whispering. Oh, nice. Nice ah. catch. Yeah, episode 88. Uh, we had a, a, some slight delays uh-huh. with releasing episodes. Uh-huh. A couple bonus episodes, which hopefully should be out by the time you're listening to this. They they haven't been edited or, or released um, while we're recording this episode. So I need to do that. I had some computer issues. So I bought some parts. I bought uh, two hard drives and some uh, more memory. Do you want to tell them why... I upgraded the memory, mm-hmm. and I installed the new hard drives. I installed another solid-state drive and a new uh, hard disk drive. So anyone listening, past, present, or future, listening to this episode, if you have a computer and you're adding hard drives to it, do not change the letters of the hard drives in the operating system. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, if you're, if you have a hard drive and it's the C drive or the D drive, don't change it to another letter. If you put in a new hard drive, cause that fucks everything up. Speaking from personal experience, it was a nightmare. Everything was broken. And I just found out as we were trying to start this episode that my computer doesn't like the overclock that I put on the CPU. So I had to dial it down a little bit. My computer's crashing already, even with the new parts, so we're doing great. Doing real good. So, yeah, that's been the last couple weeks. I was excited to uh, upgrade my computer. Upgrades turned into some, some some setbacks, but we're back. What else did I do? It was my dad's birthday yesterday. We went to Wrigley Field, so the Chicago Cubs beat the Cincinnati Reds into the dirt. Yeah, it was something like... What's the Chicago Cubs song? Go Cubs, go. Yeah. Go Cubs, go. Hey, Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs gonna win today. Yeah. Or are you talking about the seventh inning stretch? Take me out to no, the ball. Okay. That was the first one. So Wrigley Field was awesome. I saw the Cubs play. It's been a while since I've been there. We went to Pride. The three of us went to Pride together. That was pretty fun. My feet were not okay. We did a lot of walking. 17,000 steps. A lot of walking, went to Pride, had some really cool outfits. Maybe we'll upgrade, uh, upload a picture to Instagram. Yeah, we can. That would be a good idea. And then uh, we went to Chinatown. That was fun. Um, I got my head scanned. Uh, turns out I'm not as smart as I thought. 
And I don't have any like brain bleeds or anything like that, which is good. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um Flawless Victory. I think that's it. Any any new updates with you, Paige? No. It's been like three weeks. Uh-huh. <laughs> I live a consistently sad life. I don't believe you. I do. Nothing new to report. Nothing. No. I don't believe you. No. In three weeks. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite part about Pride? Sitting down. Which time? On the train home. Ah. So the train ride home <laughs> was your favorite uh, part of the day. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Oh my God, all the food in, Ch- in, uh, in Chi-Town, it was just so good. Oh, so tasty. Yeah. Um, but my feet hurt. You, Noodles, you do not understand. Zach, I am morbidly obese. That speed of walking, that was insane for me. I didn't know I could walk that fast. Yeah, you got a lot of steps and it was pretty good. It was insane. I had to waddle at work. Yeah, and then you were you were you've like, been working like twelve hour shifts, so your feet were killing you. Yeah. So We, we can't all be light as a feather stiff as a board. We did a lot of walking. But it was good. Burned a lot of calories. Spicy ramen. How was your butthole after that? It was like five spoons of that, so it wasn't oh, okay. too bad. That's good. No, that, that was just like, that, if you eat that, you're not a human being. Like our waitress. It just seemed wrong. I think she's full of shit. I think she just gets her kicks from telling people it's not that spicy and then watching them eat it. Mm-hmm. I think she's a sicko. Her shirt, like, and that's how the restaurant makes money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But yeah, they just take the ramen again and put it back. Yeah, they just reuse the noodles. Just put it back in the pot. Yep. Yeah. Anything they didn't eat, it just goes right back, back in, in the, the pot. pot. That would not surprise me. Damn. Saving money that way. Damn. It's all part of their elaborate scheme. That and their tap warm water. And their no liquor. And their no liquor. Just a, those fuck those people. Jesus. No, nothing new. All right. Beer. The brewery mm-hmm. for episode 88. Oh, we didn't say what the topic was. No. This week we're talking about H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes. 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 We'll get into who he is. He's a guy. Brewery is Hailstorm Brewing Company. Oh, that's a lot of H's. Yeah, Hailstorm. For H.H. Holm, it's Hailstorm. We've done Hailstorm once before. Mm-hmm. Episode 36 on Vlad the Impaler. Oh. We drink Vlad. Yeah. The Imperial Russian Stout. I recall, because that's the only reason I picked that topic. Yep, that was by Hailstorm. Hmm. Uh, the About Us page on their website doesn't really talk about them like I was hoping it would. I mean, you go to... You go to an about page and you kind of assume you will find information about them. No, what are you talking about? You're crazy. But that didn't happen. Um, it's got their location, their hours, their phone number, links to purchase their beer, names and photos of the crew, events scheduled for the future, a kitchen menu. Can we go back to the Hailstorm 
cover that I did and see what I said about them? Uh, I want to be like if I was like I want to. Did I say the exact same thing? Oh yeah, I don't know. I tried to find it. It's not in Dropbox because I took the first fifty episodes out of Dropbox. I need to add them back. Oh, I see. So I didn't. Yeah, I'm just going from scratch. I was gonna do that. I was gonna pull up your notes. I'm just so curious. Yeah, and try to see what we talked about. But yeah, it's got all that stuff. Uh, events, kitchen menu, and a beer finder tool. You can mm-hmm. find their beer. They're located at eighty sixty one hundred and eighty sixth Street. In Tinley Park, Illinois, 60487, 8060186 Street in Tinley Park. All it says on their about page is craft beer, music, and scratch made kitchen. Hmm. And while looking around online uh, for more info on their brewery, I dug up an article from about a half a year ago, like December of last year. It's got some Huevo Chismacito, which uh, I'm going to talk about. Hailstorm co-owner removed following sexual misconduct allegations. I think I read this. Uh, well, we did. Or we was did, there another one that had sexual misconduct? Yeah, I think there was another one. Because this was in December of uh, last year, and we did Vlad before that. So, um, hmm. so well, when we did, Bla- when we did Vlad, 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 Vlad the Impaler... He was still on the board. He was still on, yeah. He, he was, was still, still the, molesting people without them knowing. Yeah, he was I still see. the brewer, the, you know, co-owner or whatever. Uh, so apparently there was some big party after something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the Great Taste of the Midwest Beer Festival. Mm-hmm. And there was an after party. And there were a bunch <laughs> of people from a bunch of different breweries there. Um, apparently he was there. This guy, his name is Steve Miller. Um, he was there and... He walked up to some chick and were taking photos and he put his hands down her pants and she started crying and she was like, he keeps touching me and I don't want him to touch me. And he was very drunk. This guy was super drunk and uh, it all resurfaced and he was getting yelled at by a bunch of other brewers. Apparently some people from Metro, Metropolitan Brewing, Frankenstein. Yeah, I remember. Uh, were involved in, in, in the whole thing. Frankenstein. Uh, yeah. So they were like yelling at him. So... This all came to light the next day, and Steve went on social media, and he... he, he um, Tried to save face? No, 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 no. What's the word for... He admitted to oh, his wrongdoings. He was pretty, you know, up, up, up... You know, he's pretty straight about everything. Don't defend him. No, I'm not defending him. But he, he went to... I'm just saying what he did. He went to Facebook, and he, he uh, was forthcoming. I see. He didn't try to, like, be dodgy or anything. And uh, then there was an official thing on their Facebook by one of the other owners, Ashley Thompson, said that Steve was removed, so he's no longer affiliated with uh, Hailstorm. I was just trying to find information about them. I was just trying to figure out who Hailstorm was, and uh, this is what I ended up uncovering. I don't know. It's shitty. Previously co-owned by a Mm -hmm, predator? mm -hmm. But they're good now. I, I looked at I ran background checks on all the new um, the I'm new sorry, owners. You did what? I ran background checks on all the new owners. I checked out their their criminal histories and everything like that. Made sure they were okay. Uh, is he for serious right now? Everyone's everyone's the, legit. Are the words coming out of his mouth for real? Yeah, you know what you're talking about. Everyone's legit. <laughs> it's, all right. It's you know what you're right. So the co-owners now of Hailstorm, <sighs> they all checked out. The beer by Hailstorm. Does we're gonna, he have a history? Oh yeah. He oh, did. Oh, extensive. 
Yeah, yeah? extensive. What about it? Yeah, he stole a lot of uh, sexual items uh-huh. from like sex stores. Sex stores. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't want to get in trouble, Steve. I don't know. I don't know you who you are, Steve Miller. No, because now, now I'm sorry. Just start, cut this out. Cut this out. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, cut okay, this out okay. so you don't get in trouble. Yeah, no, it's in the video. But it won't, yeah. no, turn it off. Turn it off. Cut, cut, okay. cut everything. The beer by uh, Hailstorm Brewing, this really went off the rails, is called Hotel Life. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about H.H. Holmes, you will be laughing right now. Hotel Life. Uh, this beer is also <laughs> on their website, available to go. Might also be on tap, but we're not sure. Stop by the brewery. Check it out. I don't understand the clicking. It's I just, hear the clicking. It, it's going to happen. Oh, my. It's just going to be a thing. The clicking? Yeah. There's no description on this beer on their website. Uh, there's a short review on Binnie's and Untapped. Hotel Life is very mild on the hop and malt character. A straw to gold. Very clean and crisp, highly carbonated lager. I see. This is an American lager. I don't think we've had an American lager on an episode before. We have had a pale lager. We did Famosa, episode six. And a winter lager, Stay Frosty. And we did Landshark for a bonus episode, which is also a lager. But we've otherwise had variations of lagers. We have had just had an American lager. It's a pretty simple and common style of beer. You know, you know, you know lagers. You know lagers, like Budweiser, Coors, other th- things. Those other ones. Uh, they're sometimes called adjunct lagers, uh, which is what Beer Advocate calls this beer. Um, hotel life. Mm-hmm. Craft lagers should be similar, but I imagine they contain higher quality ingredients than like Budweiser. I see. Uh, adjuncts actually are the name given to unmalted grains, like corn, rice, rye, oats, barley, and wheat, or grain products used in brewing beer which supplement the main mash ingredients, such as malted barley. This is often done with the intention of cutting costs, but sometimes also to create an additional feature, such as better foam retention, flavors, or nutritional value, or additives. Both solid and liquid adjuncts are commonly used. So... Cheaper beers have adjuncts. They're adjunct lagers. Craftbeer.com says American lager has little in the way of hop and malt character. A straw to gold, a very clean and crisp, highly carbonated lager. Uh, they typically have low SRM, 2 to 4, low IBU, 5 to 19, and low ABV, 4 to 5. Enjoying a flute glass at 40 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. We don't have a flute glass. Good to pair with faux. Smear ripened cheeses and kettle corn balls. This is uh, 4.7. Hotel life is 4.7%. ABV, oh. 12 IBU, unknown SRM. It's going to mm. be light. Mm. Beer Advocate gives this a score. What is the score? Of 84. Huh. Good. Good. It is number 52 in adjunct lagers, which I wouldn't call this an adjunct lager, it's a craft lager. Beer Advocate calls it an adjunct lager. Hmm. Number 24,304 overall and an average rating of 3.62. You can check out Hailstorm. <laughs> at Hailstorm Brewing Co. on Facebook, Hailstorm Brew on Twitter, and Hailstorm Brewing on Instagram. Yeah. They're all different. I don't like that. Try to keep it consistent next time. Or go to their website, hailstormbrewing.com. I have a review to read. I'll read it after. Okie dokies.
Okay, I'm really bummed out right now. There's a section on Beer Advocate that is literally worst rated beers, and all the worst rated beers are just non-craft beers. So like, <laughs> like Miller Lite, uh, Natty Ice. Yeah. And I'm just like, come on, I want like a really gross craft beer, something that really did not hit the mark, and I want to try it. Hmm. I'm sure we can figure that out one day. <laughs> yeah, look at that. Wrigleyville. I got a Chicago Cubs pint glass. Forgot about that. Hailstorm Hotel. Hotel Life. Keller TV Magic Fingers Out. Ah, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Government warning, according to the Surgeon General, women should not drink alcohol and beverages. There's a green thing on the bottom. Mine doesn't have that. Mine does. Yeah, mine doesn't have a dot. Oh, it's got some charts, though. Flavor profile. Look at that. Where? Oh, yeah. You want to read the flavor profile? No, you can't. Okay. There's one that says dry and sweet. Dry to sweet. It's a, a, a like a level thing. It's it's all the way over on dry. Almost all the way on dry. And then there's malty and bitter. It's almost all the way on malty. Then there's light and dark. It's almost all the way on light. <laughs> it's, I like how it says they're like their hours for the brewery. Yeah. Live music on the weekends. Oh, this was canned on June 7th, though. So this is still good. Kind of smells like hay. I thought it's. I was gonna say it smells like farts. Maybe some someone farted in a pile of hay. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just getting. No, it smells like hay. Yeah. Like some straw. Super light. Super clear and light. Yeah, that's just... It's a lager. Farty. That smells like a lager. It smells like... Um, it smells farty. Whenever I, whenever I need to describe a lager, like the scent and the taste of a lager, maybe not so much a craft lager, but those adjunct lagers, if you've ever been to a baseball game and you had a beer from uh, at a baseball game, that is a lager. So Budweiser, old style, those were lagers that we had. And um, this is what uh what lagers are what they taste like what they smell like but i'm gonna grab a picture the number one worst rated beer is budweiser select <laughs> budweiser select select 55 it's got 620 ratings and an average score of 1.65 <clears throat> miller genuine draft 1. natural 1. yeah 1.65 1.65 How would you describe the smell, Paige? Farty. Not as farty as that, uh, as that Romeoville beer with the band. Remember uh, that one? Yeah, we reference this so much now. It smells like a, a it farm. It was the worst smell ever. Yeah, it's farm. Clearing out. the sands. Clearing the sand. That's I it. will literally always remember that beer because of how gross. It that was. one smells like farts. This it one's just manure. <laughs> but it's it's clear. It's golden, uh, and it's there's no head or carbonation in it. It dissipated very quickly. So no head? No head. Have you seen that vine? No. Hang on. <laughs> uh. Ooh. I mean, 
Evet. Tim de tuvalete. Tastes like a lager. I don't like it. What's not to like about it? I don't like lagers. How do you know? How do you not like lagers? I just decided. I just decided now that I hate all lagers. Ah, it's super crisp. That's not my favorite style of beer, but... That's what I'm saying. I'm into sours now. I'll prefer a cream ale. I'm into sours now, Zach. Keep up. I don't know, Paige. It's just a phase. I need a coaster. The sour phase. There's coasters there. That one, right there, where the can is. You know, this is like a cream ale, just without the creaminess. So not a cream ale. Yeah, just not very... Not a cream ale at all. Very crisp, light, refreshing. Very, very neutral. I'm just honestly. saying there's nothing that's like, bam! No. Shizzles It's a craft, it's a lager, it's just a lager. It's not even a pale lager. Yeah. Oh, we gotta rate this. I am not prepared in the slightest. The number one rated beer on Beer Advocate is Kentucky... Kentucky? Kentucky. <laughs> Kentucky Brunch Brand Stout. Oh, yeah, I saw that. 12% ABV. Yep. 900 ratings. All right, get ready, Paige. I'm ready. All right, your turn. What am I doing again? Uh, we're talking about H.H. H. Holmes. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, I remember. I got cat hair on my hands. That happens when you pet a cat. You're right. Mm-hmm. Damn it, he's always right. H.H. H. Holmes... Or Herman Webster Mudget. Mudget. It sounds like an insult. She tapped me with her paw. You Mudget. Better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes or H.H. Holmes. Has a bit of a history. He's a bit of a stinker. Oh, so not like a good history. Yeah, not like a great history. Uh, He was born in May 16th, on May 16th of 1861. That's so long ago. Gilmanton, New Hampshire, in the U.S. of A. can never trust anyone from New Hampshire. You're right. Anyway, yeah. I, I just always forget that that's a state. He used to be known as other names as well. I just thought this was interesting because he has such fancy names. The Beast of Chicago, the Devil in the White City, the Torture Doctor, the Archfiend, <laughs> Judson. Judson. Oh, God, it's Judson. Kyle. Not Kyle. <laughs> Oh, dear God. He's married a few bitches as well. Yeah, I read a little bit about that in my section. He's, uh, he doesn't know when to stop. Yeah. He was born to Levi Horton Midget and Theodate, 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 Paige Price, both of whom were descended from first English immigrants in the area. Mudgett was his parents' third-born child. He had an older sister, Ellen, an older brother, Arthur, a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. Okay. Holmes' father was from a farming family, and at times he worked as a farmer, trader, and house painter. His parents were devout Methodists. Later attempts to fit Holmes into the patterns seen in modern... ...have described him torturing animals and suffering from abuse at the hands of a violent father. Oh, God. But contemporary and eyewitness accounts 
of his childhood did not prove either. At the age of 16, Holmes graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and took teaching jobs in Gilmanton and later in nearby Alton. On July 4th, 1878, he married Clara Lovering in Alton. Their son, Robert Lovering Mudgett, was born on February 3rd, 1880. Mudgett. Lovering Mudgett. I know. Oh, God. In Loudoun, New Hampshire. Robert became a certified public accountant and served as city manager of Orlando, Florida. Oh. Holmes enrolled in the University of Vermont in Burlington at age 18, but was dissatisfied with the school and left after one year. In 1882, he entered the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated in June 1884 after passing his exams. While enrolled, he worked in the anatomy lab under Professor William James Herdman. That's a lot of names. Mm -hmm. Then the chief anatomy instructor and the two were said to have been engaged in facilitating grave robbing to supply medical cadavers. Oh, my God. Holmes, this is where it all started, huh? Yeah, right. Holmes had apprenticed in New Hampshire under uh, Nahum, I'm not sure, White, a noted advocate of human dissection. Years later, when Holmes was suspected of murder and claimed to be nothing but an insurance fraudster, he admitted to using cadavers to defraud life insurance companies several times in college. Hmm. Housemates described Holmes as treating Clara violently, and in 1884, before his graduation, she moved back to New Hampshire and later wrote she knew little of him afterwards. After he moved to Moore's Forks, New York, Moore's Forks, New Moore's York, Forks. a rumor spread that Holmes had been seen with a little boy who later disappeared. Holmes claimed the boy went back to his home in Massachusetts. No investigation took place, and Holmes quickly left town. He later traveled to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and got a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but quit after a few days. He later took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia, but while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. Oh, my God. Holmes denied any involvement in the child's death and immediately left the city, right before moving to Chicago. He changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes to avoid the possibility of being exposed by victims of his previous scams. Mm. In his confession after his arrest... Holmes claimed he had killed his former medical school classmate, Robert Leacock, in 1886 for insurance money. Robert, however, died in Watford, Ontario, in Canada, on October 5, 1889. In late 86, while still married to Clara, Holmes married Murda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hmm. He filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after marrying Murda, alleging infidelity on her part. The claims could not be proven, and the suit went nowhere. Surviving mm. paperwork indicated she probably was never even informed of the suit. Mm. In any case, the divorce was never finalized. It was dismissed June 4th, 1891, on the grounds of want of prosecution. Holmes had a daughter with uh, Murda, Lucy Theodate Holmes, again who was born on July 4th, 1889, in oh. Inglewood, Chicago, Illinois. Independence Day. Yeah. Lucy became a public school teacher. Holmes lived with Murda and Lucy in Wilmette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. Holmes married... <laughs> tending to business. He's doing some business. Holmes married Georgiana Yoke on January 17th, 1894, in Denver, Colorado, while still married to both Clara and Murda. Oof. Damn. Man's breaking all the hearts. Holmes arrived in Chicago in August of 1886. 
which is when he began using his new name, H.H. Holmes. He came across Elizabeth S. Holton's drugstore at the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood. Inglewood. Holton gave Holmes a job, and he proved to be a hardworking employee, eventually buying the store from her. Although several books portray Holton's husband as an old man who quickly vanished along with his wife. Dr. Holton was a fellow Michigan alumnus, only a few years older than Holmes, and both Holtons remained in Inglewood throughout Holmes' life and survived well into the 20th century. It is a myth that they were killed by Holmes. Hmm. Holmes purchased an empty lot across from the drugstore where construction began in 1887 for a two-story mixed-use building with apartments on the second floor and retail spaces, including a new drugstore. A creditor of Holmes named John DeBrill, Brill, died of apoplexy on April 17, 1891 in the drugstore. When Holmes declined to pay the architects of the steel company, Aetna, Aetna, Aetna? Iron and steel, they sued in 1888. In 1892, he added a third floor, telling investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition. Mm. Though the hotel portion was never completed. In 1892, the hotel was somewhat completed with three stories and a basement. The ground floor was the storefront. Fictionalized accounts report that Holmes constructed the hotel to lure in tourists visiting the nearby World's Fair in order to murder them and sell their skeletons to medical schools. Okay. There is no evidence that Holmes ever tried to lure strangers into his hotel to murder them. In fact, none of his likely victims were strangers. Holmes did have a history of selling cadavers to medical schools. However, he acquired his wares through grave robbing rather than murder. Reports by the Yellow Press labeled the building as Holmes' murder castle, claiming the structure contained secret torture chambers, trap doors, gas chambers, and a basement crematorium. None of these claims were true. Other accounts claim that the hotel was made up of over 100 rooms and laid out like a maze, with doors opening into brick walls, windowless rooms, and dead-end staircases. Cases. In reality, the hotel floor was moderately sized and largely unremarkable. It did contain some hidden rooms, but they were used for hiding furniture. Holmes bought on credit and did not intend to pay for. The hotel was gutted by a fire started by an unknown arsonist shortly after Holmes was arrested for some things. Oh, I'm, I go into that. But was... Um, you're going to go into the hotel being rebuilt? Uh, no, I talk about a little bit about the fire and how that happened, but... It was no, I don't talk about... Rebuilt how, and used as a post office until 1938. Uh, yeah. I remember you can... Uh, I thought the post office was still there. I thought you could still visit it. Like, you can visit the site where that hotel used to be. That's all you want to talk about? Uh, you didn't want to talk more about the hotel? I guess I could. I'm just tired. The structure that he purchased was ugly and large, containing more than 100 rooms and stretching for an entire block. But Chicago was a city on the rise. Yeah. And new construction was going up all over this part of the American Midwest. After all, Chicago was perfectly situated on the shores of Lake Michigan. How nice. For his mansion, H.H. Holmes planned for the first floor to contain an entire block of storefronts that would be rented out for a flood of new businesses opening in the city. How exciting. The the third floor would contain apartments for new residents looking to make it big in the Windy City. 
Those um, eerily, some of these unsuspecting residents may eventually become Holmes' victims. Those victims got to see the second floor, one that was allegedly full of asphyxiation chambers, mazes, mm. and hidden stairs. And the especially unlucky victims made it down to the basement. Oh, yeah, that's where the party happens. Throughout the building's construction, homes switched builders and architects frequently so that no one involved was able to realize the gruesome end goal of all the odd parts. Smart. The house was completed in 1892, and by 1894, police would be exploring its winding passages while Holmes sat behind bars. At first, authorities were confused by what they found. There were hinged walls and false partitions. Some rooms had five doors and others had none. Secret airless chambers were found underneath floorboards, and iron plate-lined walls appeared to stifle all sound. As for Holmes' own apartment, it had a trapdoor in the bathroom, which opened to reveal a staircase that led to a windowless cubicle. Hmm. In the cubicle, there was allegedly a large chute that tunneled through to the basement. One notable room was lined with gas fixtures. Here, Holmes would apparently seal his victims in, flip a switch in an adjacent room, and wait for the horror to unfold. Another chute was found near do- nearby. Near day. All of the doors and some of the steps were connected to an intricate alarm system. Whenever someone stepped into the hall or headed downstairs, a buzzer sounded in Holmes's bedroom. It should be noted that these descriptions have been met with some skepticism by historians. And so it's worth keeping in mind that at least some of the designs may have been exaggerated or even invented by the newspapers. Mm-hmm. The first clue about the bizarre floor plan's true purpose came to the cops in a pile of bones. Hmm. Most of the bones were from animals, but some of them were human. They were so small that they almost certainly belonged to a child, one who was no more than six or seven years old. And when authorities descended into the cellar, the scope of the building's hidden horrors were finally revealed. Besides a blood-soaked operating table, they found a woman's clothes, another surgical surface was nearby, along with a crematory, an array of medical tools, a bizarre torture device, and shelves of disintegrating acids. Holmes' fascination with dead bodies had apparently lasted long past college, as had his surgical skills. <coughs> After dropping his victims down through the chutes, he reportedly dissected them, cleaned them, and then sold the organs or skeletons to medical institutions or on the black market. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's all I'm done. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <coughs> I have a lot to cover. Thank God, go ahead. So I'll talk about how things went after the uh, after his castle was finished. He sells his original drugstore and opened another drugstore in the castle. The new drugstore captured the whole community's attention with its elegant design. Roman columns, gold-lettered signs, polished wood paneling, frescoes, and arched ceilings. Next to the drugstore, he had a jewelry shop, restaurant, and barber shop. In 1890, Holmes was 30 years old. His empire grew at a tremendous rate, and he put an ad in the newspaper for more help. He needs some people to give him a hand. Ned Connor had the same uh, lifestyle as Benjamin. I wasn't sure if you're going to talk about Benjamin, but uh, Benjamin Pitzel? Benjamin Pitzel. Pitzel? Pitzel. I don't know. Pitzel. Uh, ben met Holmes in November of 1889, uh, a year prior, and worked for him on the construction of the castle. 
So we're talking about Ned Connor. He had the same sort of lifestyle as Ben. He was foundering from job to job, dragging his wife and daughter along, uh, wasn't making as much money as he knew he probably should, wasn't doing great. When he answered the ad for a manager and got the job, Ned thought all his problems ended. This is with Holmes. He had married Julia Smith, a six-foot-tall, green-eyed woman with reddish-brown hair piled in curls on her head. Holmes noticed her talent for detail and quickly fired his cashier, giving the position to Julia. Thrilled about her good fortune, Julia invited her sister Gertie to Chicago. Gertie, Gertie. 18, with a captivating innocence that caught Holmes at his first meeting, gross, was flattered by the older man's attention. Really gross. He whined and dined the young woman revolting, showing her all of the exciting sights of the big city. This is terrible. However, when Holmes professed love for her, disgusting, and told her she would divorce his wife, oh my god, what are you doing? She was appalled. Rebuking his offer, she immediately confessed to her brother-in-law, Ned. Ned helped her hightail it out of the city back to the small town of Muscatine. Rejected by Gertie, Holmes turned his attention to Julia. In a short time, it was noticeable to the people around them that the two had become lovers. Ned seemed to turn a blind, blind eye to his wife's infidelity and took comfort in the fact that he was working a good job and had a place to stay after a stream of failures. One day, everything changed when several friends cornered Ned to let him know about his wife's behavior. In a saloon down the street from the castle, Ned slugged back a few after work. This day, some of his bar buddies decided to let him know what everyone else knew. My wife saw them kissing from the window. Oh, God. They didn't even close the door to the back of the room, Ned said to his friend. Why, I saw a man... I, I saw him touching her bottom as she stood to get some there, them pills, their liver pills I use, said another man. Last week, when you were downtown, he closed the shop. I saw both of them get into a cab. By the time... Everyone talked like that back in the day. Is that what they all sounded in, in like? 18... Yeah, 18... 80s. By the time Ned heard everything, he was pretty liquored up, slamming down his drink, sending the whiskey splashing all over the bar. He stormed out. Out. Julia opened the door to her room, reached to light the gas lamp on the wall. She wore a navy blue dress that curved around her body, ending in a bustle. Her jacket trimmed in red, piping gave her a smart professional look. It matched her navy and red hat. Turning around, she was startled to see Ned sitting in the chair near the window. It's the, the classic coming home, turn on the light switch. And they're sitting in the chair with a drink, you know. A cloud of smoke obscured his face. Julia walked over to the bed and removed her hat pins, placing them on the night table. All right, we're gonna we're gonna double double team this here. So you're gonna read the underlines, okay? Oh God. So you're you're Julia, and I'm Ned, okay? All right. Had a talk with some people today, he said. Oh. said Julia, who began unbuttoning her jacket. About what? She walked to the closet and hung her jacket. About my dear, sweet, beautiful wife, he spit out as he put down his pipe and walked to the bed, being bedded by my employer. I don't believe I like your tone, Ned. People gossip. Ignore them. No one had to tell me what I already suspected. I wanted to believe it was just innocent flirting. Holmes is a destroyer of marriage. He wanted to divorce his wife for your sister. You were just second best. She whipped around the bed and faced Ned. He loves me. He's handsome, successful, intelligent, caring. Everything you aren't. 
You couldn't shine his shoes, Ned Connor. I forbid you to see him again. You will quit the job and be my wife. You don't have to work and never see Holmes again. <laughs> I will not quit my job. I will not stop being Holmes. The fighting went on for hours and uh, resulted in Ned packing and sleeping on the floor of the barbershop downstairs. Oh, Nettie. Julia continued her affair with Holmes and inevitably became pregnant. By that time, Ned had moved out of the castle, filed for divorce, and was about to marry another woman. Julia had entrenched herself into Holmes's business so deeply she oh, had no. become a threat. He convinced her she was the love of his life and wanted to marry her only if she had an abortion. Oh dear. When she thought it's pretty topical right now. When she thought of her daughter Pearl, she could not bring herself to do it. Holmes persisted and assured Julia he had performed many such procedures during his time as a medical student. Julia kept putting it off. Finally, on December twenty fourth. 1891, Christmas Eve, Julia agreed to an abortion. Too upset to put Pearl to bed, she asked Holmes to do it. Afterwards, he led her down to the dark basement and makeshift operating room, gripping his arm and sobbing. She had no idea she would never see another Christmas again. Oh, no. And neither did Pearl. Dun-dun. Oh, my. Charles M. Chapel worked for Holmes, doing a variety of jobs around the castle for about two years. His previous job was in the same building that housed the Bennett Medical School. Curious by nature and good with his hands, Chapel picked up a rather unusual skill, articulating skeletons. <laughs> he first observed the procedure, and after a short time, he actually did the work. In the winter of 1892, a few months after the disappearance of Julia, Holmes summoned Chappell, Chapel, Dave Chappelle? Dave Chappelle, the comedian, to his office. Charles, would you like to pick up some extra money? Asked Holmes. Asked Holmes. Charles stood in front of his desk and smiled. Of course, Mr. Holmes. I would like to use your special skills to articulate a skeleton. He led Chapel to a second floor room with poor lighting. On a table, a cadaver of a female lie. Chappelle told authorities that it's either Chappelle or Chapel. I'm just mixing it every time. Uh -huh. Chappelle told authorities that the body looked like a jackrabbit that had been skinned by splitting the skin down the face and rolling it back Ew. off the entire body. Yeah. But you know, it's a woman. Yeah. He also said considerable flesh had been taken off. Chapel thought Holmes was doing an autopsy on one of his patients. After stripping the flesh off and articulating the bones, the body was prepared. Chappelle was paid $36 for his work. How much is $36 in... Look it up. Look it up. What year was that? This is uh, 1891. 36. Sorry, 1892. $36 in 1892. Probably like a couple hundred, yeah? Dang. 36 in 1892 is worth $1,156.34 wow. today. $1,156.34. $1,156.34. $1, huh. Okay. Oh, that's crazy. Well, it's not bad. A thousand, eleven hundred bucks? It's an increase of $1,120. Jesus Christ. The skeleton was sold to Hahnemann Medical College for $200. Dr. Pauling, a surgeon... Are you doing the math? 6000 Oh, wow. That's an expensive skeleton. Damn. Pricey skeleton. 
Dr. Pauling, a surgeon, had the skeleton placed in his private offices in his home. What did he do with that skeleton? <laughs> Looking at the skeleton, he often wondered what had taken her life. Consumption? Childbirth? A bad heart? A crazy, maniacal doctor man? Dr. Man. Fascinated with the skeleton, he often would show visitors his unusual female skeleton that was over six feet tall. That's a little mm. suspicious. Interesting. Yeah, and Julia's missing. So, we don't know where where she is, and you got a six-foot-tall skeleton. A little sus. Emmeline Sigrand, or Chagrand, was a stenographer in her hometown of Lafayette, Indiana, at the county recorder's office. In July 1891, she began working in Dwight, Illinois, home of a sanitarium for alcoholics. Emmeline's stunning beauty caught the eye of Benjamin Pitzel. Remember this guy? Yeah. Pitzel? Tall, blonde, with piercing blue eyes and a captivating smile, she fascinated Pitzel. Emmeline enjoyed conversation with Pitzel about his job and his interesting, wealthy employer, Dr. Holmes. Intrigued with Plopla's description, Holmes wrote Emmeline, enticing her with a job paying over 50% more than the sanitarium. She accepted the job working for Holmes and lived in a boarding house one block from the castle. Holmes began his seduction, sightseeing, flowers, dinner, jewelry, and compliments. By summer, they were lovers, and Emmeline had written back home about her fiancé, Robert E. Phelps, an alias Holmes told her to use so as not to jeopardize his eminent divorce from Murda. Emmeline wrote her sister, Philomena, that they might be moving to England to share an estate with her beloved father, an English lord. In the fall, Emmeline's relatives arrived. Holmes, conveniently busy, did not meet with them. One of them pointed out the poor worksmanship of the building and the inferior quality lumber that was used. Damn. Emmeline, yeah, what a diss. But Emmeline did not want to hear any disparaging remarks about her perfect love, so she ignored the suggestions that Holmes was not what he appeared to be. What did he appear to be, Zachary? Um, uh, not a killer. Oh, okay. Holmes planned the wedding for December, a civil ceremony with just his witness. Simple, quick... And then a long trip abroad, so I may spend all my time with you, only you, Holmes said, near Emmeline. It will be beautiful, no matter where we wed, because I'll be with you, Emmeline said. Her eyes traced his face. Holmes pulled back from their embrace, reached in his inner pocket, and presented her with twelve envelopes. Address these, my dear, with your beautiful handwriting to all the family and friends back home. I have ordered printed announcements for our wedding etched in gold. Holmes planned to kill her, not for money but for lust. Only in a dead state could he he achieve the ultimate sexual thrill. In early December, probably a few days before the wedding, Holmes summoned Emmeline. He sat at his desk, paper stacked, looking busy. My dear, can you fetch me the white envelope in the vault marked Property Deeds? Of course. Jesus Christ, (laughs) Emmeline said. She, she got her vocal cords removed in between this time. It didn't skip that part. She unspun the lock and stepped into the vault. Standing on her tiptoes, she slid her hand back and forth along the shelf as she looked for the envelope. The light from the other room dimmed. She did not hear Holmes walk up to the vault door. She did not notice the door slowly begin to close until darkness surrounded her. Then Emmeline froze as the vault door shuttered close. The lock spun and the room became her tomb. Uh-oh. Holmes went back to work occasionally. I cut out the part where he masturbates to her um, uh, screaming for help. Oh, God. Yeah, Holmes went back to work, occasionally listening to Emmeline's screams, which, according to Holmes, quote, continued for hours. Several weeks after the incident, 
The LaSalle Medical School bought a skeleton from Dr. H.H. Holmes, a young female. Dear, oh dear. There is so much more. I'm so tired. (laughs) One of the requirements of employment with Holmes was a life insurance policy for $5,000, naming Holmes as the beneficiary. This was money in the bank in case his other swindles slacked off. When Jenny Thompson, 17, blonde, they're getting younger and younger. This is terrible. When Jenny Thompson, 17, blonde, blue-eyed, small-town girl from El Dorado, Illinois, came to work in the castle, Holmes saw another opportunity. Jenny confided in Holmes that she had not written to her family. Originally, she told the family she was going to New York to live. They had no idea she landed such a good job in Chicago. She started working for Holmes. Again, he used the vault trick. Jenny suffocated in the vault. Her body was stripped of flesh, skeletonized, and sold to the University of Illinois Medical School. U of I. Oh, hey. Another victim, Mrs. Pansy Lee, a widow from New Orleans, took Norlands, sorry, took a room in the castle. Holmes used his usual charm after learning Pansy had $4,000 in a false bottom of her trunk. He asked her to let him put it into his vault for safekeeping. Pansy refused, insisting she could take care of the money as she had done traveling all over the United States. Holmes killed her and cremated her body in his custom-built oven. In the early 1890s, Chicago became the site of a kind of World's Fair, celebrating the 400-year anniversary of Columbus's voyage to America. Holmes's castle was a perfect place to lure tourists, steal their money, and murder them. There were gas jets in the room to asphyxiate the victims and the kilns below to cremate the bodies. Fifty tourists who visited the Columbian Exposition and took rooms in the castle never returned home. Gasp. Many of those who met their doom in the, quote, castle of horrors were young women. In the midst of his murderous pursuits as a hotel keeper, Holmes fell in love with a young woman named Georgina Yoke. To keep her interest, Holmes told Georgina lies upon lies. First, he told her both that uh, both his parents were dead, as well as his brothers and sisters. His only family left was a bachelor uncle, Henry Mansfield Howard. Telling her this to justify the reason he sometimes used two names, H.H. Holmes or H. Howard, his adopted name as opposed to his birth name. When he asked her to marry him, she accepted him and his two names. Little did she know, he was considered married to Murda, who continued to live in Wilmette with their child, Lucy. Technically, he was married to his first wife, Clara Lovering, who lives in Tilton, New Hampshire, where Holmes's parents lived. Mm-hmm. That dude's fucking crazy. Holmes and Georgina decided to wed in the winter of 1893, but the stress of his murderous and larcenous past began to take its toll. Creditors caught up to Holmes, threatening to take the castle. Holmes always several, so he's, he's running uh, risk of losing his hotel. Holmes, always several jumps ahead, planned a quick retreat with Georgina. A few weeks after Georgina accepted Holmes' proposal, an associate of Holmes set the castle on fire. Remember? The fire? The fire destroyed the top floor. As usual, he had insured the building with several companies for a total of $25,000. An astute investigator noted the fire started in several places. After investigating Holmes, his report that Holmes tried to defraud the insurance companies did not pan out. Holmes was not charged and was free to go. However, he did not collect the insurance. The biggest scheme brewed in Holmes' mind long before the castle swindles fizzled and proved to be his downfall. He convinced Ben Pansel 
to take a $10,000 life insurance policy with Fidelity Mutual Life of Philadelphia and fake his own death. A corpse with a badly disfigured face would be Ben's double. Holmes assured Ben he would find a corpse to match his physical characteristics. With my connections to the, the corpse will be no trouble, he told Ben. The plan was for Ben to go into hiding and not tell his family anything. Ben could not just disappear without saying something to his wife, Carrie. So he went against Holmes's instructions. He told her about the scheme. Carrie, distraught that something could go wrong, begged her husband to reconsider. He did not. He told his older daughter, Nessie, not to believe anything she read in the newspaper about him. Ben left Chicago and never returned. Oof. Meanwhile, Holmes's creditors got wind of the arson at the castle. They banded together, got an attorney, and threatened Holmes with criminal charges. November 22nd, according to witnesses, was the last time anyone saw Holmes in public, although he did make a few clandestine visits to his wife and daughter. Which wife and daughter? Good question. On January 9th, 1894, Holmes married Georgina Yoke in Denver. She became Mrs. Henry Mansfield Howard. From Denver, they moved to Fort Worth, Texas, and met Ben. Holmes told his new wife he had business to take care of in Fort Worth. Again, he changed his identity. The couple became Mr. and Mrs. H.M. Pratt. He, as Pratt, along with his assistant Ben, formulated schemes to swindle wealthy Texas businessmen from money, property, and businesses. His psychopathic arrogance made him reckless in decisions. Instead of skipping town like any other embezzler, Holmes stayed in Fort Worth. They stole a freight of horses and shipped them to Chicago. Texans did not take horse theft lightly. The crime was found out and the law latched onto their trail. They worked their way across the country to New York, Philadelphia, Memphis, Denver, and St. Louis. Continued carelessness and greed landed Holmes in jail for the first time. He tried to defraud the Merrill Drug Company using a scam like the one in Chicago. The drug company found out and had him arrested. Georgina, bemoaning the indignity of his husband's arrest, eventually bailed him out. During his stay in jail, Holmes met Marion Hedgepath. A very bad man, according to the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Marion was a celebrity criminal. Perhaps that was why Holmes felt comfortable. Comfortable enough to let his guard down and reveal his swindle. Marion gave Holmes the name of a lawyer for a promise of $500. The lawyer would help him in the insurance scheme involving Ben. Now everything was in place for the insurance fraud. Ben went on to Philadelphia, opened a phony patent office, rented the room in the back, and waited for the plan to unfold. Holmes' stay in prison was short. He met with Jephthahow, the lawyer whom Hedgepath referred Holmes. Howe would take care of the details of the insurance fraud. Holmes returned to his wife Georgiana, Georgina, and they left for Philadelphia for business. Georgiana? had been feeling poorly for a few days and was distressed Holmes could not wait until she felt better. Quote, It's a great opportunity. I'll make $10,000 for you, he said. His wife agreed, and off they went on another journey. Upon arriving in Philadelphia, he set up an appointment and then canceled it when he did not like the meeting place. Ben was disappointed. Holmes asked, if ben, Holmes asked ben if they could meet at his room. Ben agreed. It was the last agreement Ben would ever make to his trusted employer. The next night, Holmes watched Ben from the shadows drink himself into oblivion. At a local tavern, he followed his drunken friend back to his room, checking his pockets for the tools of his murderous plan and waited for the right moment. When Ben opened his door after several tries, Holmes jumped from the shadows, chloroformed his colleague, 
gently allowing the body to slip to the floor. Working quickly, he took a vial of chemicals from his pocket, poured it on Ben's face. A small explosion ensued, obliterating Ben's features. He arranged the body so the face would get the full glare of the sun, thus ensuring quick decomposition. Holmes's medical training came in handy once more. Ben had missed an appointment with one of his potential investors. I wonder why. The man had come by the shop a few times and felt concerned for it was always closed. Finally, he pushed the door of the shop and it opened. He called out for Ben several times. Cautiously, he went up towards the back of the store and reached the stairs to the upper rooms. He noticed a foul odor. Up, up he went until he arrived at the top floor. He opened the door slightly, saw a body on the floor, shot down the stairs, and ran four blocks to the police station. Holmes lost no time at all. He returned to Georgiana at the rented rooms, told her the deal had gone through, and they should make $10,000. Next morning, they boarded a train for Indianapolis and spent a short time in the city. He checked newspapers to see if Ben's death was discovered. A few days after arriving, he saw the notice. Holmes was delighted his scheme was working. He said goodbye to his wife and headed back to St. Louis. Carrie Pietzlala bordered on hysteria when she read the story about Ben's death in Philadelphia. Her daughter, Desi, tried to calm her down by reminding her what her father said, not to believe what was in the newspapers. Holmes's arrival at that moment could not have been timed better. Finding Carrie in a state of collapse, he pulled her into a private room and chided her for believing Ben's death notice. He's hiding out. You must play along. This is what Ben wants. He is not dead. What a terrible person. After a while, she believed his smooth-talking manner and calmed down. Holmes was worried Carrie would crack. Also, she and the baby had been terribly ill for several days. He knew that in this state, she might blow the whole scheme. He convinced her to let him take Alice, even though she was only 15 years old. Desi, the oldest, had to stay to take care of the baby while her mother was ill. Alice would be needed to identify the body in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Holmes and Alice went to the insurance company. Carrie Pizza gave the power of attorney to Holmes. The problem with the insurance company was that Ben had used a fictitious name, so they needed a more positive identification. Days had passed since Ben's death. He had, was already buried. An order for exhumation was filed to allow the positive identification. Fidelity insurance agents felt something suspicious, but chose not to pursue it at that time. According to the police report, the death was an accident. What alerted the agents had to do with the fact that Ben made his payment two days before he died by wiring it to the office last minute. Alice looked so impoverished, impoverished and pitiful when she arrived at the office, the agents didn't have the heart to pursue an investigation. The coroner had laid out the exhumed body of Penn covering his badly disfigured face. Alice, frightened and nervous, clutched Holmes for moral support. And he's distinguishing marks? asked the coroner of Alice. My father had a scar on his knee, Alice said. The coroner pulled back the covers to expose his knees and a mole on his neck. Both times she nodded yes, that's my papa. I can tell by his hands, she cried. Holmes lifted the covering on Ben's face. Yes, that is Ben Pizza Man, who had worked for me. When the identification was over, Holmes took Alice to Indianapolis, leaving her there while he returned to St. Louis. Almost done. Almost. I'm falling asleep. Almost done. This is captivating, Paige. No, it's not. This is so boring. 
Okay, continue. I'm going to take a nap. This is the story of H.H. H. Holmes, Paige. Yeah, I've heard his story so many times. I haven't. Really? Now it was Carrie's turn to finish the scheme. She accompanied Holmes to Jephthahoe, the lawyer he got from his cellmate, Marion Hedgepath. After the paperwork was signed at the insurance company, Holmes told Carrie there would be a lawyer's fee and money Ben owed him on an investment in Texas. In the end, Carrie walked away with $500 out of Ben's $10,000 insurance policy. That's crazy. Only walked away with $500. He also convinced Carrie to let him take Howard and Nellie to join Alice in Indianapolis so they could stay at a wealthy lady's home. Carrie returned to Galva, Illinois at her family's home and waited for Ben to contact her. The insurance company re- received a letter from Marion Hedgepeth outlining the insurance fraud. Did Holmes merely forget to pay Marion? We'll never know, but it caused his ultimate downfall. Although Marion told the insurance company that Holmes had substituted a cadaver, the agents were convinced it was the real Ben They hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency to investigate. The Pinkertons gathered a great amount of information about Holmes' past schemes from Chicago to Texas. They decided to follow Holmes from city to city as he dragged the three children along in a sojourn that was made to confuse anyone trying to follow him. What's a sojourn? A break? A vacation? Yeah, vacation, a halt. Finally, in Boston, with the help of 20-year police veteran Frank Geyer, they were able to arrest Holmes. They intercepted a letter with Holmes's code sent to Carrie asking her to remove a bottle of expensive chemicals from the basement to the attic. Unbeknownst to Carrie, the bottle was filled with nitroglycerin. Holmes made arrangements on a steamship to Europe. The Pinkertons had to move fast. Frank Geyer aided the Pinkertons in surrounding the Adams house and arrested Holmes for, quote, conspiracy to commit fraud. At the same time, Carrie was picked up and brought to Philadelphia for her part in the conspiracy. Little did they know that Holmes was a serial killer. So they, they thought she was in on it, but Holmes just killed the man and she's innocent. Overnight, Holmes became a notorious celebrity. News of his numerous swindles, horse thefts, and frauds gave people a sense of admiration for the sheer genius of his plots. By the time Carrie had arrived in Philadelphia, she was ready to confess to anything. Believing her husband alive and part of the elaborate scheme, Carrie kept faithful to Holmes' story. She verified that this was fraud, not murder, concerning her husband. When she had to identify the body of her husband, Carrie, she turned on Holmes, screaming about the whereabouts of her children, Howard Nell. And Alice. Holmes claimed the children were with a rich lady in England. Suspicious, Frank Geyer retraced Holmes's journey, traveling from city to city, from East Coast to Midwest, and even Canada. Dauntlessly, he, pers- he pursed his gut feeling that Holmes had killed the children. Back at headquarters, police gave the real story about Holmes to his young, naive wife. Holmes, as bigamist, as swindler, as killer. Georgiana, realizing the police were telling the truth, cooperated as much as she could. When the bodies of the children were found, Howard buried beneath a house, Nellie and Alice suffocated in a trunk, public opinion called for his death. Herman W. Mudgett, alias H.H. Holmes, was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. In the end, he thought his facial features had changed to that of a demon. His lawyer asked him how many people he killed. Holmes told him, 133. Even in prison, he made money selling his story to William Randolph Hearst Corporation for $10,000. On Thursday, May 7th, 1896, at 1025 a.m., H.H. Holmes 
was hanged. Fearful of grave robbers, he left explicit instructions for his burial. Ironically, a man did offer a large sum of money for his body. A grave 10 feet deep, 8 feet long, and 5 feet wide was dug. In the coffin, Holmes's face was covered with a cloth, and cement poured over every part of his body. Thirteen men dragged the coffin to the grave. The weight of the coffin caused it to fall into the grave upside down. Instead of facing the heavens... He faced hell. Eh. Are we done? Oh, thank God. I'm so, so, so tired. See, I didn't know a lot about... I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know a lot of that. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. My section was very long. I'm sorry. I wish I wasn't so tired. We have more of the episode. We're not done. <laughs> Did you forget... Uh, did you think of a beer? It wasn't anything special. It it tastes like a lager. Lagers kind of all taste the same. I suppose that with this being a craft lager, it tastes better than if you order Buzz, Budweiser, Miller Lite, Old Style, whatever, any other kind of adjunct lager. This is actually better tasting, but it's still just a lager. It's an American lager. It's nothing, nothing great. You? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you've pretty much summed it up for me. I'm... I want the wow. I drank the whole thing. Yeah. But, I mean, that's... Like, we talked about but this. But did you do it excitedly or begrudgingly? I did it because the beer was decent tasting. Yes, I wasn't thrilled about it. I wasn't excited. Yeah. It, w- it wouldn't be a beer I'd drink again, but it was tastier than the beer that I had at the, the ballpark yesterday. But... We we said this before, it's beer and fear. So we try a multitude I of know. different different kinds of beers. So I like trying different I things. Know. You're right. It can't all be sour beers and gozes. I mean, technically could. It's and our Berliner podcast. Berliner Weisses. It could be. It could be a Berliner Weiss podcast only. Beer or Berliner Weiss and fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, websites beerandfearcast.com. You can check out our episodes, which are supposed to be released every Wednesday at noon Central Time. They aren't. They aren't, because I'm slacking. Uh, a lot of computer issues. Life happens. Uh, Wednesday at noon is when they should come out. You can check us out on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates every week. I still got to post some updates, some Harry Potter updates. We got to post some maybe some Dahlia updates. You got to post some... Uh, um, uh, pride updates, some pictures. Put more pictures. We gotta put more pictures on Instagram. Uh. And then we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you want to listen to podcasts. We are on. Mm. Just search us up, Beer and Fear, or go to our website again, Beer and Fear Cast, and you can look up every podcast platform that's on there. Check us out. Stay up to date every Wednesday at noon. Thanks for listening. Episode eighty-eight about H. H. Holmes. 